Welcome to Mintcast, the podcast by the Linux Mint community for all users of Linux. Off in La La Land, I'm Joe. Tipping my fedoras, all three of them, I'm Norbert. No longer booting into recovery mode, I'm Josh T. I'm Moksha Moss. And hey everyone, I'm Bill. This is episode 381.5, recorded on Sunday the 20th of February. Livestream information is at mintcast.org slash livestream. If you see something that you'd like to hear about, tell us. Send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. Join us live on YouTube. Post at the Mintcast subreddit. Chat with us on Telegram, Discord, Facebook, or post directly at mintcast.org. In our innards section, we talk about Raspberry Pis and other single board computers. And finally, the feedback and a couple of suggestions. Okay. Well, then let's move on to the innards. And here in the Linux innards section, um, we're going to be talking about Raspberry Pi and other single board computer systems. Pi episode. Yep. I've been wanting to do one for a while. Me too. Because, um... I have a project that I found to be very interesting, even though I don't think it turned out to be very difficult. I kind of want to get into the nitty gritty of it. Um, this project is to use USB IP on the Pi, preferably the Pi Zero, so that I can use my headset with my computer while moving around the house without having to switch between multiple devices while podcasting. Not with like this podcast, but with the other podcast that I'm on where we don't do video. So my garage computer would be handling the connection to Mumble or Discord and the Pi would be connected to a battery and my headset allowing me to get things done while on some of my podcasts. There are other uses for it as well, such as using the Pi as a central hub so that you can use the same USB devices on multiple machines. Although this might require some extra scripting, but it prevents you from having, you know, disconnect it from the one machine, carry it over to the other machine, and, and set it up there. Now, the first thing that I did was set it up on my Wired Pi 4 for testing. I first tried to do the setup in Manjaro, but I could not get it to work there at all. It would install, and then there would be some kind of dependency issue, and I couldn't track it all down. But since I had multi-boot set up, I was able to switch over to Raspberry OS, and the setup was pretty quick and easy, and I do have the link posted for where I got the information on the minimal setup that I used for testing, and on the server side, it was sudo apt install USB IP, and then I had to sudo mod probe USB IP host, and then um, to get it started, I had to do sudo USB IPD space tack capital D, and then I had to find the device, the USB device, and I think it was USB IP space list space tack L or tack capital L, and then pick the device that I wanted. In my case, it was one tack 1.3, and so I did a USB IP bind dash B one tack 1.3, and that's all on the server side. And the client side, I had to do the same install for USB IP and then mod probe VHCI tack HCD and then a couple of things that weren't listed on the site I, that I had to mod probe was USB IP core and USB IP 
host. And I guess that was a change with the newest version of USB IP that came out. And then I had to run a USB IP attach tech R and then the IP address of the Pi and then tech B and then the device number again. Now you can do that with multiple devices. And so anything you wanted to hook up, you just put that in for. And then the, like I was saying, the Pi 4 was using a wired connection and it worked perfectly when I had my Razer Nari Ultimate hooked up to it. I even used it on a couple of podcasts, even though it's like right here next to my computer, my uh, garage computer. I just completely forgot that I had it set up and it worked just fine. I also tested with a keyboard mouse combo to my garage computer and that worked really well. I didn't notice any issues whatsoever. The next thing I needed to do was redo the setup on the Pi Zero. I ordered a USB hub hat for the Zero and found an STL on Thingiverse that would hold both. And I, I have it right here in my hand. I just wanted to show it on camera. I know that's not going to do a whole lot of good on the audio only, but it is uh, still a really small device and the hat just fits right on top of it. And the 3D print holds it all together and it's still smaller than the normal Raspberry Pi. It's the width of the Zero, but about the height of the Pi 4. And I think it's great. And if I'm going to do any Zero projects in the future, I'm probably going to order more of these hats and do some more 3D printing of these cases because I, I just think it looks good and it works really well. And it just comes with a little U-shaped connector to go from micro to micro. And so that way when it sits, when the hat sits on the zero, it just goes from one to the other and makes the four ports on the uh, hub work. And I didn't have to do any special setup or anything. It was just plug and play. Now, while the hub was shipping, I did 3D print the case, and it does hold both, and I was able to use the Berry Boot image that was already on the micro SD card to completely redo the Raspberry OS image so that I was starting completely clean. This time, on this setup on the Zero, I wanted to do the System D process so that uh, I could run it headless with a battery for the power supply and not have to SSH into it and redo all the commands every time. I just wanted to be able to turn it on, hook it up, and have it run. So I used different set of instructions at this other website that I have listed in the show notes. And that gives the setup for the, the system D, and then you just have to change things with the um, proper... IP address, well, for the, the server side, you don't need the IP address. You just need the, um, the USB ID of the device that you're going to use. And you can have it hooked up into any of the ports and it will automatically set it up with the proper location. And then setting up the systemd daemon for it. And that worked out pretty well. There were some issues with that and I'll get into it. And then same thing with the client side, you just needed to, to add the, the system file and the, the systemd setup for it. And on that one, you have to include the IP address, which was fun because my IP address was changing because I was switching between different connection types trying to get things to work. And then you also have to change the ID of the device that you're connecting to. 
but it will automatically set the location using the commands that it has listed there. And it seems like it would be easily modifiable, and it is easily modifiable, so that you can just set it up for one of the ports and then hook whatever up to the port. The only problem is, is that if there's nothing hooked up to the port and you're set up that way, then system D will not work and you'll have to manually start that once something is connected up to the port. With the, some slight modification, yeah, I already mentioned that, I got it running easily enough again with the new setup, but the issue I ran up against is that the Wi-Fi on the Pi Zero was just not fast enough to get a good connection. I was getting really, really choppy audio coming out of it. And so for testing purposes, I hooked it up to an external Ethernet connection using one of the hubs that I have. And th this worked, although it did not work as well as it did on the Pi 4. And I assume that's because it's all going through that one USB connection on the Pi Zero. And I have searched for my 5 gigahertz Wi-Fi adapters that I already own, but I, I can't seem to find them either. They're probably in the same place as my 3.5 millimeter jacks. So wasn't able to find that and test the 3 point, or the 5 gigahertz range with the Pi Zero. But I did try a different 2.5 gigahertz external dongle with like, uh, it has its own built-in antenna and everything, but that did not work as well as the built-in did, and the built-in was working pretty bad. Also, after having to restart both machines several times, I did need to set up some scripts in order to do the mod probing at startup, because instead of staying, each time I restarted, I had to redo the mod probe so that the system CTL stuff would work correctly. So this working wired but not wireless makes it a lot less useful to me and the setup is a little bit more tedious because of the mod probes and the system CTL requirements and if there's one issue along the way then the system D function will just crash and I'll have to manually restart it anyway. Thankfully all these issues can be resolved over SSH so it can be set up headless with minimal issues. I like that I got it to work but for me, I'm going to have to call this a failure because it doesn't work well enough to actually use it for what I wanted to use it for. I could try to do this setup on my tablet, which would probably clear up a lot of the issues. But at that point, I may as well just run Mumble from, from there and forget about using my garage computer for it. Do you guys have any questions? Did I explain it pretty well? Okay. Will this be on the test, sir? Yes, you could definitely do it on a desktop. No, I mean, I said, will, it, will this be on the test? But, yeah. Yes, it will. It, there will be a test at the end of the show and uh, a quiz. It won't be a full-on test. It'll be a quiz. And, and you'll need to know it all. Is it multiple choice? No. It's essay. I'll take my preliminary oh. F right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've been known to BS my way through essays. Essays are not my fun thing either, but... <laughs> Moss, tell us about your project. Well, I currently have two Raspberry Pis, a 3B and a 4B with 4 gigs of RAM. Only the 4 is currently in use. I'm using it as a computer and TV server. I run Ubuntu Mate on it, which allows me to go to the web and authorize the use of various plugins and accounts. Mostly I use it to watch YouTube videos and news reports, run it as a Kodi server, and watch Plex on it. Oddly, I can't watch Prime Video or Peacock on it, although I can use the websites. 
I'm not paying much at all for TV streaming and still have a fully usable computer. So if I want to check my email, I can. Uh, got a nice 32-inch screen across the room from me. Uh, it's almost big enough for me to read from my chair. <laughs> I don't really understand why I can't use the website. Amazon uh, Prime Video gives me error message that I don't have a particular library installed and I go looking for it and I can't install that library on the Pi, apparently. Joe, I think you told me something about that once. I've struggled to get anything proprietary working on the Pi. It's supposed to work, but sometimes it just doesn't and it's not real clear why. I don't know. Like I say, I can go to their websites, I can go through my account, I can do everything but watch the videos on Amazon Prime and Peacock. So you've got Plex running on the Pi 4. I got Cody and Plex. So how, how are you doing that? Well, it's actually, just... I'm running Plex through, the, through my web browser. I'm running Cody through a Cody program, but I'm running Plex through the web browser. The web browser on the Pi? Yes. Okay. Um, Firefox. On what distribution? Uh, Ubuntu Mate. I think I'm at uh, 21. Uh, no, I'm at 2004. I stuck with LTS on that. So when 2204 comes out, I'll upgrade to that. The big problem I'm having with thinking about upgrades is that the server that hosts my plugins seems to be down. And so I would have to find some way to install without affecting my home directory. And I'm not good at that yet. Anyhow, I keep wussing out on setting up the Pi3B as a Pi hole. I know it isn't supposed to be hard, but sometimes I just need my hand held. And as Dale Miracle can confirm, even then I sometimes don't get it. So until I can get Bill or Leo or someone uh, to help me, I'm probably not getting anywhere. Londoner has already sent me a two-file installation guide that looks really simple, and I start freezing up in the middle of the first page, so I still haven't gotten anywhere. What I want to do, Moss, is get a chance where we can get on Discord and go into the uh, one of the video channels. That way I can bring up a, a page where I'm walking through the pro. You can watch what I'm typing in one step at a time and get that done. I was hoping to do that before this episode, but for one reason or another, it just didn't happen. But yeah, I mean, the people that say it's easy are people that are used to the workflow, you know. And if you're not, it can be a little bit intimidating, a little bit daunting, because I mean, in order to get it to work, you gotta have you gotta have a static IP, which the the install script goes through all the steps of setting up everything from the static IP to uh, changing the back end DNS service that you're gonna use. It gives you the option of Quad Nine and Google DNS, and I think Open DNS and uh, Cloudflare. I always choose Cloudflare. I'm sure I can do it. I just am also sure that my autism makes me really resistant to doing things that are more than three steps. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely more than three steps. And then once that's all set up, of course, all the hardware that you want, you can either run your router to it, but I've learned I can't do that. I've got to to just pick and choose what, you know, every device can be set up with its own DNS. And that's how I end up doing it. Because if I run the router to it, then all the people in the house that are playing their silly little games online are, are no doubt going to run into a situation where they they have to watch some silly little ad. Yeah, that's Pi 4. That's a nice case, too. 
That's my 3B. Oh, that's a 3B? Okay. Yeah, I think it's kind of cool. I don't remember who sent this one to me. I remember who sent me the 1, the 2, and the 4, but not the 3. The 3 is perfect for Pi Hole because it's got a... It's got a uh, you can run Pi Hole on a Pi Zero, and it works just fine. But the Pi 3 has got an actual proper Ethernet port on it. I could go back through the old show notes because I definitely talked about these things when I got them. Yeah. Anyhow, what about you, Josh? Well, unfortunately, I don't own a Raspberry Pi or any of the other similar SOCs that are out there. Uh, in the past, I did consider buying one to set up a Pi hole, but ultimately I decided against it. And now there's really no pies to be found. We're all out of pie out there. Uh, I'm all out of pie. What am I without you? Now you say that, but I got this pieshop.us right here in the States. They've, they've got pie 400s. They got pie 4s and 02Ws, all the, all the ones that everybody keeps saying they can't oh, get. Well, they were out where, the, where I looked, but yeah, maybe there are some out there online. Next time I swing by Micro Center, I'll send you a message on Discord or something, and we can work out me shipping one to you. I really don't know if I'd uh, if I'd have a use for it, Joe, but uh, you know, if I get you a Pi Zero W two or whatever, it's not going to be all that expensive. It's probably going to cost more for me to ship it to you than it is actually going to cost for me to buy it. I'm telling you, eat your pie. Have <laughs> seconds. <laughs> The thing about the the zero though, unless you buy adapters and that, you've got to use wireless to uh, use it as a uh, pie hole. Yeah, which is one of the reasons that I like Hub Hat. Right, and that was the reason I use my three as the pie hole, so I can just plug a Ethernet directly into it and not have to mess. Of course, the three has Wi-Fi too, but the four, I don't think. I think the four hundred has the five gigahertz. Uh, you asked last week, Joe, if the pie. Zero two W had the five gigahertz, and I can confirm now that it does not. Yeah, okay. So it's still two point four. I mean, DNS does not need a heck of a lot of bandwidth and resource. Your network and all your throughput is always going to be as fast as your weakest link in the chain. But I think my router right now says I've got twenty seven devices connected to it. Yeah. <laughs> and wow. Of those, maybe five of them are actually running through the pie hole right now. So, yeah, yeah, this is a well-wired house right here. Well, I guess. Yeah, and we were talking about cases, and I just wanted to show off my Pi 4 case real quick. Oh, I love those. Yeah, the, the, the ones that look like one of the original yeah. NESs. Yeah, I love this thing. Yeah, that is very cool. I, they, they make those for the, uh, they look like the Super Nintendos, too. I was going to get one of those. I went over to some of the sites to look for a pie for sale, and they definitely are trying to gouge on these prices now. Pie, the Pi 400, the whole kit, is $100 on Pie Shop USA. Let me see. I was almost over there. You do. You get, the, you get all of the wires, all of the plugs and wires, and you get their cheap little mouse. Uh, they, got a, they got a mouse that looks like it was put together by... Which Pi 4 is it? The Pi 400. Oh, okay. So it's Pi 400. That, that's yeah. not a bad price then. Now, not when you you get everything, including a little book that it's got all kinds of projects you can do. I haven't looked through it real real well yet because the only reason the only thing I wanted to use that for was desktopy stuff. 
and that's mostly just to have content to talk about. But Main unit only $70 on that site. What's that? Main unit only for the Pi 400 is $70. Yeah, so you'll... Which is weird because on eBay, uh, Pi 3B is $65 plus shipping. Oh, that's, that's not a very good deal at all for a Pi 3. No. There's a 52 with free shipping, but again, no case, just the board. Yeah, and all that stuff kind of adds up, so... I did have a friend bring one over once, so I have seen one running, and he had the small screen on and everything, and it was pretty impressive for such a small device, but again, I just personally don't have any use for it, so it's just not something I've been interested in. But I am happy that people have found so many ways to implement them and that the project has seen such widespread success. I just don't foresee myself being in the market for one anytime soon. But uh, I may not have a choice. <laughs> With- well, there's always a choice. You could just say, no, Joe, I'm not getting one. <laughs> well, Joe, I never say never, but, you know, well, I guess... They're a lot of fun. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. I've loved all of mine, and I've used... Well, you know, I still have some zeros that I don't think I've put into circulation yet. So maybe I'll just send you one of those. And those zeros are the bottom line worst experience. And even those are better than what I remember the PCs that were shipping with Windows XP back in 2002, you know. Probably faster. Point, click, and wait. Right. You know. So Pi 400, I go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, uh, it's it's still impressive that they've turned because these these things are basically the size of a stick of DDR4 RAM for a laptop. It's about the size of these doggone things, and that's a complete computer right there, including wireless. So it's still impressive to me that they can make something like that and charge ten, fifteen bucks for it, fifteen for the zero two W. And that my first computer back in 02 when I went back to school was 512 gigabytes of RD RAM. Ain't none of y'all old enough to remember that. Well, anyway. And it had that Pentium 4 single core uh, 32-bit processor. That thing costed me $3,000 altogether with it and all the peripherals. And this thing is 15 bucks, and it is comparable, if not more performant than that was. So... It's fascinating to me how far we've come on that stuff. Yeah, certainly. Well, the Pi 400 looks really, really cool, and I'd love to have one, but I really don't have a use for it. And therein lies the problem. So, <laughs> Pi 4 I'm using. The Pi 4 is great. I can stick that under my TV and, and it hides, but having a whole keyboard on a machine means I pretty much have to use it as a desktop, and I don't need another desktop. And you're not going to get... It's not going to be real good for... Uh, content creation and doing a heck of a lot of things at one time but I like I'll get into here in a minute since they came out with this 64-bit version of Raspberry Pi OS some of the benchmarks are pretty impressive I was gonna say Bill that's uh, pretty much all I have on it so if you want to take the reins it's your turn so yeah I've got several pies I've got one of about everything that's come out since the Pi 3 because they, they came out with the Pi 3, and then the 4, and then I think the 0 came after the 4 did, if I remember right. I could be wrong. Pi 400 
sometime around the same time that the compute module came out and i've got all of these and they've done several different things um, the pi 3 is running a dns sinkhole which is called pi hole and what that is for anybody that's not familiar is a network level ad blocking service but it's a lot more than that uh, Pihole can basically block any domain that is added to its block list. And out of the box, there's a copious number of domains on that list. Um, it's, it's an effective ad blocking thing right out of the box. And all you really do is point your DNS to it. And honestly, I didn't even know what DNS was until I decided to play around with this thing and install Pihole on it and but more than that, you can also block DNS queries that companies might use to track your usage and, and uh, the places you go online. It's, if you ever installed one and then watched the number of queries that come across your network for all your devices, it's, it's actually staggering the amount of uh, stuff that's being collected based on your Internet activity. And yeah, once you once you get the package installed, you can access the admin interface by just simply typing the IP address uh, forward slash admin in your uh, browser, and then you've got a, a username and password involved in all that, and then you you've actually got full control over the system from right there in the uh, web interface. You can whitelist and blacklist or allow list and block list. Uh, any domains that you want. So Pi-hole will run good on just about anything, including the Pi Zero, because DNS is really, from a hardware standpoint, it's not using a heck of a lot of resources to uh, manage it. It's actually surprising how little you need to run something that has such a huge impact. But it really does. It can, it can really speed up your perceived internet experience because it's blocking things on a web page or things that are going on in the background so it, it'll seem as though your websites are loading much faster because there's a lot less to load and there, there's a lot less things getting in the way i run it on my pi 3 like i said before because i i can plug a uh, ethernet cable directly into that now the, the thing about the pi 3 is that the ethernet from a hardware standpoint, the Ethernet traffic, meaning the uh, data coming from the Ethernet, is sent through the USB bus. So you have slightly less speed as a result of that. But like I said before, DNS is not a hugely taxing process in terms of data transfer. So it's not that big of a deal. They resolved that problem with the Pi 4. Uh, where the uh, the Pi 4 has proper gigabit Ethernet. Well, it has a proper gigabit Ethernet port, but it's still only, I think, maxing out at like 300 Mbps instead of, you know, a full gig. I think that's far more than anybody's ever going to use a Pi yeah. to use. I don't know. Uh, let's see. So the Pi... Okay, so my favorite one is this Pi 400, the one I like to talk about the most. Um, I got this hooked up to this monitor hanging on my wall. I had grand ambitions for this thing, which are no, none of them really kind of shaked out. So at this point, it's just me playing with new software and then new releases of Raspberry Pi OS. And recently they've 
taken their 64-bit version out of beta. I say that because you've been able to get a 64-bit version of Raspberry Pi OS for some time. It was a bit of a it was a bit of trickery to get to it. You had to go directly to the download mirrors and download it from there. It's been available. It's not been completely optimized until now. And um, I, I linked here in the show notes to the Pharonix page where Michael Larabal over there, as usual, he did some pretty exhaustive uh, benchmarking where he compared the 64-bit version to the 32-bit versions. And the results were, for the stuff where 32-bit was still just a little bit more optimized, the difference was negligible, in my opinion. But for everything else, uh, the 64-bit was a, a dramatic increase in performance, in some cases up over 40%. Hey, Bill. Yeah. Have you tried the beta of 2204 from Ubuntu Unity? I have not. Not yet. Um, yeah, Rudra just came out with that uh, last week or so. Is that 64-bit? 64-bit. That'll be my next thing to try. Ubuntu Unity Respin 2204 beta. A Unity relies heavily on GPU acceleration, so I'd be interested to see how that works. I always liked Unity. You know, Unity had a... we. <sighs> Unity is kind of like a cab over truck in my line of work. Nobody wanted it when it was out. Now that nobody's got them, everybody wants one, that kind of thing. It's It gets all kinds of love out there in the universe now, but... Well, it was a lot better after a year or two than it was when it first came out. Yeah. And most people judged it on the initial offering, myself included. I'd like to say that I'm in a cab over, and if anybody wants it, they can have it. <laughs> <laughs> you go bouncing through some alleys and that thing, and uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I just remember driving in the early 90s when those things were more... Uh, ubiquitous out there and it was just not a very positive experience now you see them guys drive in they got them things with the stretched out frame and the cables all hidden and everybody's like oh man i want one of them yeah 20 years ago we couldn't have paid you enough what did it call it called again okay so it's you got two types of trucks it was a you had a, a conventional which had the big hood out in front you know like you would expect to see in an american truck and then the cab over was like a flat front face which actually is probably still more common in european countries just because of how much how much less space you've got to get around over there oh so basically the ones that have a flat front yeah the fl the cab over had the flat front yeah the difference is where they put the motor yeah. With the with the conventional, we can get up out of our seat, walk right back into our bunk like it's a RV or something. Oh, so it's called because the cab is over the, the motor. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, the cab over. You got the big doghouse and you had to crawl over that. I don't think I could do that anymore, but... Basically, all the trucks are almost like that here in Europe. Yeah, I do remember that from being in Germany. They do tend to turn better, but they also tend to ride a whole lot worse than a conventional. Yeah, because you're directly above the steer axle, which is the worst riding axle on yeah. the truck. And But you can see, like, directly down the front to know how close you are to something. Yes, you feel like you're going to go face first into the pavement yeah. whenever you hit the brakes. Anyway, back on topic. Like I said, many of the benchmarks that Michael Larabal did showed a dramatic increase in performance. And I am I can tell you firsthand that this 
version. I don't know if I'm going to keep it because it's still LXDE and they've done some things to modify it, but there's some things that irritate me. I haven't been able to work out how to make uh, custom keyboard shortcuts. I've, I've been looking at instructions online and it's always changing an XML file while I try to do that. And it's still, it doesn't seem to take the change. It's still like, I want to map the, uh, the thing with LXDE, you don't have a launcher. And what I like to do is hit the super button and then start typing my command. And uh, with LXDE, you hit the super button, it brings down the menu, but then you still have to click on something on there to get it to work. There's no automatic like you have with GNOME and whatever. And that kind of irritates me. And another thing to keep in mind, it's based on Debian. It basically is Debian. So you're not going to have an up-to-date version of Firefox some software is going to be way outdated. It does have the version 91.6.0 ESR of Firefox, but you do have the ability to install snaps. I haven't done that on this install yet, but I did it on a previous install, and the, the performance was eh, kind of hit and miss. It was interesting. The install I had of Ubuntu proper for the Pi did not have snaps enabled by default. It was installed, but not enabled for some reason by default. That is strange. Yeah. But once I enabled it, I had access to the up-to-date Firefox Snap, but at times it would crash on me shortly after starting. So this has not crashed a single time. This was ran uh, the ESR version. The ESR for 91.6.0 it was released in February of this year and will be uh, its its end of life in September. So it's still got plenty of life in it in terms of security patches and bug fixes. And anybody that's used to dealing with Debian is used to dealing with that. And for most things, you do have access to Flagpack. However, there, as of right now, there is no ARM64 Flatpak. I actually even check that out right before we went on on stream here to make sure that that was still the case because it seems like that would be something that they would work on relatively soon but like i said there's no there's no stopping you from enabling snapd and installing snaps if that's your if that's your uh, forte you just go to the snapcraft website that has the uh, uh instructions i link to that in the notes too uh, this is the first time I can honestly say that it's been an all-around positive desktop experience for the things that do work. I mean, it's a, it's a bare-bones experience in terms of desktop. But I feel like much of that was done to keep it in a condition where you have an expectation of everything working rather than loading it up with a lot of uh, features that might work or might not. It's LXDE with a little bit of customization on top of that if anybody's ever ran lxde on a desktop it's about as bare bones as it gets and while still providing you a usable desktop paradigm that you're used to seeing so i i i think uh if if all you want to do is do some light browsing and check some email and maybe watch some youtube youtube videos stream just fine 1080p the the audio and video sync is great it works just fine and for a, a computer for a hundred bucks, I think you can't really go wrong. All you need is a monitor. Not a hot gaming machine. No, no, no. So if you're... But you can install 
Steam Link on it. And if you have a gaming machine, then you can just stream everything from that gaming machine to the Pi in another room. That would be interesting to try. I haven't tried something like that. Yeah. It is. Yeah, well, as far as the monitor, uh, what's the output uh, that it has built into it? Okay, so the Pi 400, like the Pi, has two HDMI ports. And it's supposed to be able to do 4K. I've never actually seen it do 4K because I don't have any 4K monitors. But my understanding is it's supposed to be able to. Yeah, that's that's my understanding as well. And if you're running one screen, if you got one connection to the HDMI port, it's supposed to do 60 frames a second. And if you're running two, if you got both of them hooked up, you get 30 frames a second divided by two monitors. For what the Pi can do, I think that's still pretty impressive. Yeah, it really is. One thing I wanted to try was see if I could uh, make a podcast with one. That'd be really impressive. Get all the way to the end. Oh, by the way, I just made this entire episode on a Raspberry Pi. Yeah, I have noticed running uh, Ubuntu Mate, I can plug an external hard drive into it, which I have music stored on and can play that music. But the hard drive sucks some energy. And so if I'm going to go watch TV, I have to unplug the hard drive. Powered external hubs. Yeah, I need powered external hub. It's true. Yeah, I've got a couple of those. Now, right now I'm running everything unpowered and it works well. I can't run everything all at once unpowered. <laughs> That's another thing. The traditional way of booting a Pi, no matter what version it is, well, past the three, has been a, a micro SD card. But shortly after the Pi came out, they updated the firmware and this one's running on a really fast samsung usb thumb drive yeah i I actually think they um didn't come out with the official firmware update until like the three came out because for a long time there you were having to run some interesting things to make it boot from a external or you had to manually reconfigure the kernel to make it look first or not the kernel but the firmware to make it you could put the boot boot partition on the sd card and then the system partition could be on the uh, usb card or sticker drive yeah but then with the 3b they released a firmware update that would allow you to just straight up boot from an external and that is and that changes everything oh yeah yeah well i've done the firmware update but i have not been able to get it to work yeah because i think i have to go in and edit some files before i can get it to actually boot yeah because it's it's much better to do it from an external drive than it is from the micro sd card because even your best quality micro sd cards have a shorter shelf life than you know an ssd they were just never meant to do something like that i mean that's a crazy thing to ask an SD card to do. Yeah. And your SSDs or your thumbsticks, a lot of your thumbsticks are usually faster than a micro SD card. Yeah. I've got some Samsung thumb drives that are faster than uh, some SSDs out there. But I've got, I've also got a Pi 4. I've used that for, it's, it's sitting over on the table doing bugger all right now, but I've used it for a number of things and mostly consumption-based devices. At one time, I had my Pi 4 under the living room TV with a USB hub attached to it. Um, The hub had two 3-terabyte and one 1-terabyte drives plugged into it. And it was running uh, a purpose-built 
arm distribution called Libre Elect. Or I say I say arm distribution. It was a pie distribution called Libre Elect. As the website describes, Libre Elect is a is just enough Linux for Cody. And you could be forgiven for thinking that there was nothing on it but Cody, the way Libre Elect would run. But there was a little bit more added to it. It had a uh, Samba server running and a couple of other things, uh, SSH server running. And you could drop down to the command line and manually install more things or manually force an update of all the things that were happening in the background. Yeah. That, that happened a lot with Libre. I, I'll say that I, I didn't write it here in the notes, but the, when I first got the Pi 3, that's what it was doing at first. That was actually a better experience for Libre Elect than the 4 was. The 4 came out and it was a bit of an abrupt change in the way things were done. It was a complete change in the SOC, and the community had to hurry up and catch up yeah. software-wise with it. So things were kind of hit and miss in the beginning. Yeah, when the 4 came out, I mean, basically it was a new instruction set, and none of your Completely. old stuff would work. And that was one of the big things about the Pi in the past, whenever they came out with a new version— you could just move your micro SD card from one to another and have it work. Which you can do. Now, that's another thing I forgot to bring up. If you install like 32-bit Raspbian on a micro SD, you can take that micro SD out of the Pi Zero and you can stick it in your Pi 3 and it'll boot up and work, you know, within the restraints of a 32-bit operating system, of course. And you can pull that out and put it in the Pi 4 and that'll work. That is an interesting thing. Now, I mean, that all bets are off when you start talking about 64-bit. Obviously, you're not going to take the 64-bit card out of the 4 and stick it in the 0 and expect it to work. But uh, that was one claim to fame that Pi's always had. That As far as like this, this Pi hole goes, I could take the SD card out of that and put it into one of my zeros over there and just boot it up and have my Pi back up and running, no problem. Or my Pi hole, that is. So, yeah, the Pi 4, it was running LibreElect, and it had two, well, it had three hard drives hooked to it, and that was how I was streaming all of my locally stored uh, media, which was a considerable amount of media, to the device, because it would, it would stream to Kodi, obviously, on that device, on that TV, but it was also running a Samba server, so I could sideload uh, Kodi on other devices in the house. And then uh, play videos and music and whatever from that Samba server that was running on that Pi 4 downstairs. And, you know, that was interesting in and of itself. Eventually, I've uh, I've moved on to Jellyfin. But um, that was a good... Before Jellyfin kind of came along and before it got pretty good, that was an excellent way to handle all your local media files and some streaming, too. Although that's... Cody and streaming has always been kind of hit and miss. I've never tried running Plex, though, on a Pi. I, I have to admit, I, I've often wished that there was a, a better way of doing that. Okay, so I also had a couple of Pi Zeros. The only thing I've ever really used them for uh, is to run Pi Hole. The thing about a Pi Zero, it works okay for a purpose-built device. I wouldn't want to force it to do a lot of multitasking just because of the RAM limitations involved. But as far as that goes, it's it's a perfectly good device for uh, running a pie hole or security cameras. It works just fine for that. 
the Pi Zero 2W actually has a similar SOC to the uh, Pi 3 in terms of the uh, CPU capability, but yet it still has the 512 meg of RAM. So it's still just a appliance-based device. Real quick, I want to mention that I also, this is not a Pi, but it's along the same lines. I've got one of these Rock Pro 64s. That's a device made by a company called uh, Pine 64, and they make some single board devices as well. The difference is mostly in the software with these devices. I've got one that I've got in a NAS case that's running here next to me right now, and it's nice because these devices have a PCIe slot built right into the card, which makes them good for hooking up like a SATA card too, and then I've got two three terabyte Iron Wolf drives in a NAS. This is my uh, next cloud server, <laughs> and I enjoy running this because it's it's been part of my journey disconnecting from the Google thing because it's uh, it's got all of our phones in the house connected to it. We back up all of our photos and and documents and videos and everything we take. It it uploads to this every night. It's running Debian proper. Some of the positive things are that it, it's got the capability of running uh, a PCIe card, which kind of breaks the paradigm of single board. It's not really a single board computer at that point, but still. Um, the, the problem, though, is with the software, because Pine64, unlike the Raspberry Pi Foundation, does not actually make the operating system for these devices. It's sort of made, chucked over the wall, and then the community who is, to be fair, have been, you know, enthusiastically providing operating systems for this thing. Up until recently, it's not been stellar in terms of its its experience. It's been kind of like, okay, let's get this thing running. Okay, so now we're having this problem. Let's uh, fix that. And then, you know, but now we've got Debian proper for it which gives us access to the snaps. Yeah, and I do want to mention here, this seems like a good uh, point for it. Um, I was going to mention it at the end, but I'm going to bring it in now. There are a lot of companies that are making um, similar SOCs to the Pi, even much more powerful SOCs, like or single board computers as well, SPCs. But uh, BeagleBoard, uh, PandaBoard, um, Orange Pi, Banana Pi, there, there's a lot of them. And the problem is, is that um, they have their own instruction sets and it, it can make it keeping up with the updating on them difficult. And eventually people move away from it. So you don't get updates anymore. Not like with the Pi, which just seems to never stop getting updates. Also, uh, with the PCIe, if you look on YouTube, there are some really, really cool builds that people have done with, uh, I don't know if the Rock Pro 64 specifically, but like with the Panda board, where people have hooked up graphics cards to that 4X slot and done actual like gaming on them, which is insanely cool. Yeah, I haven't tried anything like that. That'd be, that would be interesting. I Power-wise, I don't know that it's dramatically more powerful i mean it's got six cores which is odd but it does it's got six cores still got four gigs of ram but another limitation also is that it does not have wi-fi built into the card they're really kind of meant to be plugged in to ethernet and used right there in place you can get a dongle there's nothing stopping you from doing that but uh they don't have the wi-fi built in but the the biggest limitation for these things is 
always going to be the software uh, with these more fringe SOCs or, well, not the SOC, but the the companies that are making these boxes. They they really count on the process of making the hardware and then counting on the community to provide the operating system for it. And it was quite some time before Debian came out with the... a proper version, which that's another thing to Debian. Most of the time when you install an operating system on a Pi, you're struck with how much different it is process-wise from installing an operating system on a PC. With a PC, you have this concept of booting into an ISO and then going through an installation process. With a Pi, it's always been a process of flashing an already made image onto the boot media. And it just, for some people, it's always felt like you're just booting somebody else's hard drive. But you could just install something from Life ISO, right? Yeah, well, so you would have to go through the process. If you wanted to make serious changes, you would have to change the username, make sure you knew exactly all the names of the groups that, that username was associated to create a new username, uh, join all those groups. The the Debian proper version that I put on this uh, Rock Pro is the first time where I've actually booted from an SD card. And that's another thing with these things. It'll boot from either an SD card or uh, it's got an EMMC slot on the board that you can connect an EMMC. And that's you get slightly better performance out of that, a little more uh, comparable to a spinning rust i suppose and then there's a third option that involves um, an spi a bit of spi storage that's built into the board itself but you're really only supposed to flash the uh, boot partition to that and then have uh the rest of the system on another bit of storage and i couldn't tell you if it'll boot from usb yet because it's i've only just used it for server purposes so it doesn't really matter but it runs uh it runs debian this this like i was getting ready to say the the install this is the first time where i booted from an sd card and it actually took me through a process of asking questions like a regular installer would like a ubuntu server installer would all sort of incurses based on the terminal but it was still an installer and then you end up with a completely personalized installation of that operating system. Most of the time you just you're booted directly into a desktop or into a into a server environment. Anyway, yeah, that and it runs uh, ZFS really well and uh it's been for about a year now it's been handling my Nextcloud server fairly flawlessly. Not a whole lot interesting going on with it. But that's about all I've got for right now. I'm still this this is a the thing with these pies is never ending. There's always something new to play with. There's a lot of projects out there that somebody, if they had the time, they could uh, play around with. There's actually some really cool pre-made kits that I've always found interesting but haven't wanted to invest the money into when it comes to like building your own handheld emulation station using the Pi 4 modules. And they just snap into place, and then you put the casing around it, you put the screen in. I'd love to do something like that. I just can't justify the cost. Yeah, there's some cool sister boards out there that you can get. Plug those, and then you have all kinds of potential for PCIe and all kinds of stuff. But yeah, that's it's inhibitively expensive right now. But that's all I got. Norbert? Well, like Josh, I never had or used the Raspberry Pi. I never really 
even thought about getting one until recently when my arsenal of uh, computers grew from two to three when I uh, acquired my tablet, which I do is uh, for media consumption quite a bit, but sometimes uh, downloading stuff over Wi-Fi is just not the same as a wired connection. So I ended up in a situation where I have a an external SSD, where I put an M.2 SSD in, a, in an external casing that I like using to transfer files because it's so fast between my computers, but it's only 480 uh, gigabytes. Uh, so often I would end up with files on my hard drives that are connected to my computer. I have two, two terabyte external hard drives and I would want to transfer files to my tablet, for example. And I oftentimes I would just sit down to my computer and transfer them from the external hard drives to my external SSD and then from to my tablet or my laptop. So I thought maybe I should just consider setting up something, maybe maybe Raspberry Pi as a home file server that I could just mount on via the network on all my devices. So I could just reach my files from the, that. I could maybe connect one of the, or even both of these two terabyte hard drives to the Raspberry Pi itself. And maybe I could just use it to store all my files. Maybe if I use a Raspberry Pi to download when I want to download something today, so they would, I would be able to download directly to the file server. And I would, wouldn't even maybe really have to uh, just copy files to my other devices. Maybe I could just uh, stream it from the Pi itself. I haven't really did any commitment uh, towards this, but it's just uh, an idea I had. Other than that, I don't really have other plans for uh, that might involve buys. There's an official uh, Ubuntu server image out there, and then maybe just doing something with that, with either some Samba or uh, an R-Sync server to upload every time the device is connected to the same network or something like that. Hmm. I'm not sure if Samba would be a good choice because I... Now nah, maybe not Samba. I would only be uh, I would only want to share stuff mounted on Linux devices. Well, yeah, I wouldn't suggest Samba for that. But if you have a Pi set up, uh, I've talked about it in the past, you can set up using, what is it, is up and is down. Sync thing? Uh, no, you can... Sync thing's another. I was going to say you could script out uh, SSHFS connections. Yeah. Uh, I had someone recommend something else other than SSHFS. I don't remember. I could quickly look it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's also an, uh, an option. Yeah, it's network up and network down. Yeah, I, I would imagine it would work stellar for something like that. If I do a quick search here on my messages, then I was recommended SFTP. SFTP? Yeah, I have a friend who uses uh, Linux and I described what I would want to do to him and he recommended SFTP. I don't even know what SFTP is. SSA. It's just FTP through SSA. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. Maybe would that be faster or less uh, resource uh, heavy than SSHFS? It'd be about the same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, I will look into this. But yeah, other than that, it's that's that's all I can bring to the table to this topic. Okay. Well, that's it for our innards today. Let's move on to vibrations from the ether. And sadly, today we have no emails. Please email us. Email us, us, folks. Mintcast at mintcast.org. Show ideas, questions, anything you got, we'll take it. We'll put it on here, and we'll try to answer it, probably horribly. In fact, it'd be fun to do an entire episode of 
feedback yeah topics yeah we haven't had one of those in a long time i'd love to do another feedback episode all right let's move on to check this out And here in Check This Out, first up, Norbert. What do you got for us, Norbert? I was browsing Reddit and someone posted uh, the project called Nala, which is a described as a prettier terminal front-end for apps for Debian-based systems. I took a look at it and it, it's nice and colorful. It kind of reminds me of the output that the uh, DNF1 Fedora and Zipperon OpenSUSE I have, but it's, it also has some nice info displayed. So there are nicer progress bar with more details. It just all around looks nice. I haven't tried it, but I would assume it works on all uh, Debian-based systems. Maybe I will try it, since I still have my Debian partition. So if it's something that interests you, give it a look. And Moss, you had one? Yeah, I've got an uglier terminal. Let, let's see if I can get my screen up here. It doesn't want to do it. There we go. Can't see it. Why not? Because you didn't click go live. Ah. Go live. There you go. And there, now we can see it. Ah, this is called Cool Retro Term. That looks cool. And it's in the Ubuntu repositories. It has several, you, you can change settings on the fly. You right click, go to settings, and there's monochrome green. I love that. Um, there's green scan lines. Yeah, look at that. <laughs> there's uh, default pixelated. Ooh. Oh, that looks cool. Yeah. <laughs> All the crap we used to hate back in the day, now it's... Oh, now yeah, it's here's your Apple II. <laughs> Start typing, that also looks cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, here is the so-called vintage. I'm starting to want to bring out a dot matrix printer right now. <laughs> <laughs> Start typing in the terminal. I think it also has a nice effect. IBM DOS. And you can set the scan lines. You can set how fast the scan is or how dark the scan is or how opaque the terminal is. It's really cool. It is just beyond cool. And this is cool-retro-term. And you can find it in the Ubuntu repositories and who knows where else. Here's another one, the IBM 3278. A little sharper graphics on that one. And the last one they have is called Futuristic, but you can design your own. That is crazy nerdy. Yeah, that's pretty <laughs> cool. <laughs> Love it. So um, let me stop sharing my screen so I can go back to reading what I have to read. I found it in Bodhi. Someone recommended it on the Bodhi group. But it's an uglier terminal, but wow, it's cool. Customizable on the run. You just do right-click and settings. I have a link in the show notes to a YouTube video showing how to use it. So that's it for me. Uh, how about you, Norbert? Uh, I recently started listening. Well, I listened to only one episode yet. I found a podcast called Open Source Voices, which uh, is trying to focus on the individual open source developers and their life stories and their project, rather than focusing on a specific project at a time. In the first episode, the guest was the Fedora project lead developer, and I found it really uh, entertaining and inspiring. The guests would uh, tell uh, about how they got involved with either Linux or open source, or both, because uh, if you get involved with one, with one of them, you eventually get involved with the other, and it's just a nice and fresh uh, format different from the other tech-related podcasts that I've been listening to. So I can recommend it to people if they're willing to the show notes. 
Cool. Another new podcast. Yeah, I checked that out yesterday when you mentioned that. I added that. I'm going to listen to some of that this week. Okay. That's it for Check This Out. Let's move on to announcements. Our next episode is at 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on March 6th, and we have a link in the show notes to get that converted to your time zone. And our next live stream will be at 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on February 26th, next Saturday. And we also have a link for that to get it converted to your time zone. Okay, and that's it for our announcements. Let's move on to the wrap-up. Um, I'm Joe. If you like the sounds of my voice, you can catch me on a couple other podcasts. I'm on the Linux Link Tech Show, which you can find at tllts.org. I'm on the Linux Lugcast, which is at linuxlugcast.com. You can find me on MeWe. You can send me an email directly, jb at mintcast.org. Or you can buy me a coffee using the link in the show notes. Norbert? You can send me an email at norbert at mincast.org. Moss. You can catch me every week on Full Circle Weekly News and about once a month on Distro Hopper's Digest. You can email me at bardmoss at pm.me. My other contact information can be found at itsmoss.com. Josh? Yeah, you can find me at jt at mincast.org if you want to send me an email. I'm Josh Thacker on Discord and at Metal underscore Foss on Twitter. And then Josh H. couldn't be with us today. You can find him at joshontech at mintcast.org, at joshontech on Twitter, and most other social sites. He's also on Crowbar Kernel Panic. And Nishant also wasn't able to make the show today. You can catch him at nishant at mintcast.org. Recon Ghost on Instagram, Recon Ghost at GitHub, Ghost.Recon on Discord, and Maverick00783 on Steam. And Bill, how about you? Well, you can email me at uh, bill at mintcast.org. I'm bill underscore H on Discord. I'm at WCHauser3 on Twitter, and WCHauser3 on Facebook. Also, check out my new podcast. It's 3ftpodcast.org, and there's all kinds of uh, instructions on there on how to consume all my content. Okay, before we leave, we want to make sure to acknowledge some of the people who make Mintcast possible. Josh Lowe for all his work on the website, Hobstar for our logo, NRD for the animated Discord logo, and Londoner for our time sync, and Norbert for our audio. Uh, Bitemark Hosting for hosting Mintcast.org and our Mumble server, Archive.org for hosting our audio files. The Linux Mint development team for the fine distro we love to talk about. Thanks, Clem. Thanks, Clem. Thanks, Clem. Thanks, Clem. This has been another episode of the Mintcast podcast. The show notes for this episode are at mintcast.org. You can send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. You can find more information about Linux Mint at www.linuxmint.com. You can follow both Mintcast and Linux Mint on Twitter, at Mintcast and at Linux underscore Mint. 
thanks to Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com for our theme music. And thanks for listening to this episode of The Midway.